Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, confronting the power base with a message titled, The Gospel Comes to Sin City. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 11, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It's hard to overestimate the importance of Corinth to the ancient Greek world. You know, when Paul arrived there, it was the largest city in Greece. The population of that city at that time was estimated to be somewhere around 200,000, which was a very large city. It was the capital of Achaia. It had been rebuilt, and no building in the city was over 100 years old. And the city had a true Roman character. The architecture and all the buildings looked Roman. The laws and the structure of the city politics, that was Roman. And in fact, a good portion of the population was Roman as well. But the population was also multicultural. In fact, Corinth drew people from all over the world. It was in its time the biggest city in Greece. Now let's get a better picture of where this city was located. It was right at the beginning of a narrow isthmus on a narrow neck of land that led to a passageway by sea from one side of Greece to the other. Now, the sea travel around the tip of Greece was so dangerous that in the ancient world, the mariners used to say, a sailor never takes a journey around Malia until he first writes his will. And because it was so dangerous, most captains chose to sail up to Corinth at the beginning of that narrow isthmus. You know, small ships would make it through by having ropes attached to them and then being pulled along land on both sides through the narrow stretch of ocean that began in Corinth. But bigger ships, well, they couldn't make it. And this is what was done. They would literally drag those ships out of the water onto skids, massive rollers, and drag them from land, starting at Corinth, to the other side of Greece and put them back into the water. I know that sounds tiresome to us, but it was still the safest way to travel. But because sailors and ship captains and traders and everyone else had to get out at Corinth, Corinth had become a boom town, kind of like the gold rush days in San Francisco. Money was just flowing everywhere and people were flocking to the city. And out of this, Corinth became a manufacturing city. And for instance, world-famous Corinthian bronze, which looked just like gold, was manufactured there. Lots of other products as well. But that was not all. Corinth was filled with entertainment. I mean, you name it, Corinth had it. They had a very large theater for plays and public lectures and musical concerts. Corinth was the first city in Greece to have Roman gladiators fighting in their own arenas. They also hosted the Isthmian Games, held every two years, and they were second in the ancient world only to the Olympic Games. And in Corinth, it was not only the men who ran in races like in the Olympic Games, but in Corinth, the women did as well. In fact, women also participated in war chariot races, and sometimes they even beat the men. And so Corinth became the place of liberated women operating on the same social status as men. But for our purposes, let's ask what the spiritual climate was like in Corinth. I suppose if you'd gone to Corinth, you probably would have noticed the temples first. You would have seen temples to at least 19 different gods and goddesses, and that's not including all the buildings that held services to the mystery religions. But most impressive of all of them was the temple of Epaphrodite. She was a Greek goddess whose Roman name was the goddess Venus. She was thought of as the ancestor of Julius Caesar, so you can see the importance of that temple in that city. Now, here's where it gets a little bit sketchy. 
You know, it's hard to know if the description I'm about to give happened during Paul's time or before, but it may well have been during his time. The Temple of Epaphrodite once housed over 1,000 sacred temple prostitutes, and every single day they'd come out of the temple. It was quite a spectacle. They'd circle through the city and they'd return back to the temple. And on the bottom of their sandals, as they walked, were written the words, follow me. And of course, many men and women did. It was considered to be a spiritual experience to have sex with a temple prostitute in the Temple of Epaphrodite. You know, in fact, the whole city celebrated its various gods and goddesses. The Corinthians were extremely proud of their religious diversity. Indeed, all the meat markets sold meat what had been sacrificed to the various gods and goddesses, the idea being that every meal could be sacred, a spiritual experience, and that everyone should experience as many of these various forms of spiritualities as was possible. And because of all of that, and because of the centrality of the temple of Epaphrodite, Corinth had a reputation of being the most permissive sexual society in the ancient world, much like Amsterdam today. In fact, it was a slang in the ancient world to Corinthianize someone was to make them into a prostitute. And if you called someone a Corinthian girl, you meant she was easy. You know, the city was also filled with a a class of people called freedmen. And these were former slaves who had gained their freedom. And they would come to Corinth in droves because the economy of Corinth allowed rapid wealth, rapid rise of social status. Sailors, entrepreneurs, priests, priestesses, entertainers, athletes, all made their way to Corinth. The city, well, it was on the map. And it's to this city that Paul would come bearing the saving message of Jesus. So let's begin with our text, which is Acts 18, 1 to 4. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now Luke doesn't tell us how Paul met Aquila and his wife Priscilla, no doubt, When Paul arrived in the city, he immediately made contact with a local synagogue, and it was most likely through that contact that he was put in touch with this couple. They were a Jewish couple, and as Luke describes it, they had lived in Italy. No doubt they lived in the city of Rome, and it was there that they were probably doing their business. And as we had made mention earlier in this study, Claudius the emperor had issued a decree that all Jews were to leave Rome. And it was through this series of events that this couple ended up in Corinth. And after all, it would have been relatively easy to start a business there. And just like Paul, this couple were tent makers. So it was a perfect fit. Aquila and Priscilla, no doubt, found that their business had been growing and they were more than happy to welcome someone into their trade that had the skill that they were looking for. And amazingly, this couple, it seems, had already come to know Christ as their long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of their sins. So how is it that they had come to know Christ? Well, there it gets, I think, interesting. There's a Roman historian by the name of Suetonius who explains the situation. Suetonius says that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because they were continually rioting at the instigation of a man named Crestus. Now, most historians agree that Suetonius had gotten his facts wrong. 
He thought that Crestus must have been in Rome causing riots. But what he didn't know is that it wasn't Crestus, it was Christus. And the riots happened because of the gospel of Christ Jesus that had been preached in Roman synagogues, causing there to be riots, the same kind of riots that Paul encountered elsewhere. So at any rate, I I need to add a word here. I had said that Lydia was the first convert in Europe, converted to Christ in the city of Philippi, and I, I still think that is likely. You know, it may be that some Jewish Christians had business dealings in Rome and they had shared the gospel as they went in the synagogues, causing riots in the synagogues, resulting in the expulsion of Jews from the city. And so some Jews in Rome had come to believe in Jesus and their conversion may well have predated Lydia's conversion, but Lydia is still, I think, the first Gentile convert in Europe. Well, leaving that matter aside, We have a Jewish couple from Rome knowing Christ as Savior and Lord. They live in Corinth. They're tent makers, just as Paul is. They're looking to expand their business as Paul arrives. And, you know, one often marvels at God's providential design in people's lives. And might I add here that none of us should be surprised when, while we're seeking to be engaged in the Lord's work, we find the most amazing coincidences. Of course, they're not coincidences. They are a part of God's providential designs. Nonetheless, through all of this, Paul is invited to speak in the synagogue. And as is his practice, he takes the people in the synagogue through the Jewish scripture. He shows how the hope and longing that's found there is fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then Luke simply says that Paul was trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. So we have to imagine then that the synagogue in Corinth was like so many other of the synagogues that we've already encountered in our study of Acts. In each one, there have been a number of other Gentile God-fearers who had come to love the God of Israel, but who hadn't undergone the things required of them should they become converts to Judaism. And so here, like everywhere else, Paul did his thing in the synagogue. The good news of Jesus was for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. And what Paul didn't know yet, that what was about to happen in that city would be the greatest success that he had had in ministry up to this point in time. But his practice, well, that was no different than what he had done everywhere else. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, its broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes our bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine. This year, we're excited to share that Truth in Life will have a unique discipleship focus. Each issue will highlight a different marker of discipleship. We trust that each of the elements of discipleship explored this year will help lay a foundation of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth in Life magazine, and so many others to fulfill its mission of providing trustworthy Bible teaching. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, visit us at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Paul has arrived in what I call Sin City. 
He's always chosen to go to the major population centers first and up to now. This is the largest and most influential city he has yet entered. But it's also the most prosperous city, the one with the most temples, the one with the loosest sexual mores. Everything he had encountered before was on overdrive in this city. So let's continue to read Acts 18, 5 to 8. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. You know, Silas and Timothy had just finished, you know, the ministry of planting churches in Thessalonica and Berea. They'd established leaders. They would have ensured that the church was functioning in a biblical fashion. And once having done that, they made their way to Corinth. And they find Paul, Luke says, occupied with the word. I, I think it's quite likely that when Silas and Timothy actually arrived, they would have brought money to support Paul in full-time work. And we know that from 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9. Paul's writing to the Corinthian believers, and there he says, And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So from that, I have to assume, well, the church in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, those churches took an offering and it was sent along. And once the two brothers arrived, Paul is free to pursue full-time preaching and teaching. And what happens next in Corinth was what happened in Philippi and Thessalonica. The synagogue leadership opposed and reviled him. So by now, you would think Paul wouldn't be surprised. I mean, after all, making the gospel available to the Gentiles without demanding they submit to circumcision, as well as all the kosher laws and separating themselves from Gentile contacts, well, to know that they could come to God without that, that was liberating for them. But that message always set Paul in opposition to the synagogue leadership. And by now, he would have seen it coming. And so Paul shakes out his garment in their presence, and that would have been understood in the Jewish community as a sign of rejection. And then he also quotes to them from Ezekiel 33, 1 to 7. See, that's the passage that says, if God brings disaster on a city and the watchman doesn't blow the trumpet to warn that city about the impending disaster, well, that watchman is going to be held accountable. But if the watchman does his job, and if the city doesn't pay attention, then the city is held accountable. And that's what Paul is saying to the leadership in the synagogue. I've warned you. And now that I have, when judgment falls upon you for rejecting your Messiah, well, your blood is going to be on your own heads. It's a powerful prophetic word. Paul is saying so much more than that, you know, Jesus is the Messiah and he's the hope of Israel and the means whereby forgiveness is, is found and, and the hope for eternity. Well, that's all true, but he's also saying that it's a great sin to reject this gospel. You know, in this sense, Paul is echoing the words that Jesus said, as found in Matthew 11, where Jesus denounces the cities of Chorazin, of Bethsaida, and Capernaum, where so many of his miracles had been done, and yet they had rejected him. He said, it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for them. And that's what Paul is saying to the synagogue leadership. If you reject your Messiah, after so much evidence has been presented to you, your blood will be on your own head. And with that, he makes an announcement. He's going to go to the Gentiles. 
He's going to leave the synagogue. And he finds a home of a God-fearer, a Gentile with a large house, tidiest justice, a man who used to attend the synagogue. Indeed, his house is next door to the synagogue. And Paul's probably still living with Aquila and Priscilla, but the house of tidiest justice is just the house that he was looking for. You know, that house would no doubt have been expansive, a large courtyard allowing for hundreds of people to meet there. And of course, the synagogue would not have been pleased with the location of the house. You know, as in short order, the meetings in the house of tidiest justice were much larger than the meetings in the synagogue. And to make matters worse and more exasperating, Crispus, who was the synagogue ruler, he migrates over there and he becomes a believer. You know, that news must have made the rounds. And so in consequence, many more are going over and they're being baptized. They're becoming followers of Jesus. And in the case of Crispus, the synagogue ruler, it's not just he, it's his whole household that's baptized. And as we will see, that by the time we get to the later sections of this chapter, Crispus is replaced by another synagogue ruler, and that man is named Sosthenes, who will, I think, later come to Christ himself. But let's get back to Crispus, the synagogue ruler whose conversion created such an explosion in the synagogue. 1 Corinthians 1.14, Paul mentions him. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Now, there are a number of scholars who feel that the Gaius that's mentioned here is, in fact, Titius Justus. And the reason they think that is because the names Titius and Justus would constitute the last two of the customary three Roman names that every Roman had. They argue that Gaius was his first name. Now, I can't say that with certainty. But if it was, that would mean that Paul first baptized Crispus, then Titius Justus, and then left all of the other baptizing, well, to Silas and Timothy, to Aquila and Priscilla and and whoever else was there. But he would occupy himself with teaching. Paul wrote the letter to the Romans while in Corinth, and he, and he mentions Gaius there. Romans 16, 23, Gaius, who is host to me, and to the whole church greets you, Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. So notice that Gaius was host to the entire church in Corinth, and that makes us believe that, you know, he might well have been Titius Justus. And notice that the city treasurer has become a Christian as well. It's fascinating how quickly the gospel took root, making major inroads into the city. I mean, Corinth might be sin city, but in fact, that doesn't make it close to the gospel. I mean, after all, it is the religious leaders that rejected Jesus in his day. But it was the prostitutes and the tax collectors, notorious sinners, who found in Jesus the answer for their longing hearts. A full-on revolution was happening in Corinth. And as we know from the Corinthian letters, that rapid growth of the church in Corinth did cause a great deal of problems. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions, you know, factions had developed. He also mentions a litany of other problems, sexual immorality in the church, lawsuits between Christians, drunkenness at the celebration of the Lord's Supper, questions about freedom to eat food that had been offered to idols at the various temples, and of course, the problem of false teaching. But this is what happens when a church grows rapidly. It means that people are crowding in even while it's hard work to keep up to the task of discipling them. But for my part, I'd sooner have the problem of too many people crowding in than hardly anyone crowding in. But it was the fast growth of the church that would also have been the case that caused a backlash in the city, as there had been in Philippi, as in Thessalonica, and one wonders what would have happened to Paul. And that's why the Lord came to him in a vision, Acts 18, 9 to 11. 
And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. See, up to this point, and there were very few exceptions of this, Paul's been leaving city after city, being forced to leave. The opposition to his ministry and, you know, the glad declaration of forgiveness of sins found in Jesus, that created an aggressive opposition. Satan was stirring up the cities. But Corinth, Sin City, the city where everything goes, would be the exception, and that's amazing. And so to allay Paul's fears, God sends him a comforting vision. God's going to protect you here. No harm's going to come to you here. And then surprisingly, he says, I have many who are my people here. See, that statement tells me that the Holy Spirit was already laying claim to many in that city. He had already chosen his own in that place, and there would be many. Paul would say in Ephesians 1 verse 3, that those who know Christ have been chosen before the foundation of the world. And God was telling Paul, I have destined many into this place. This is a place of great harvest. And so we find Paul is given freedom to stay in Corinth for a year and a half. And during Paul's entire ministry, only in Ephesus would he stay someplace longer. And this would give Paul a time to write, to reflect, a time to heal. It was God's grace to him. So how should we apply the lessons from this place? I suppose the first lesson would have to be that we should not assume that a licentious city is necessarily closed to the gospel. And then another matter, please don't think that living in a pleasure-mad city makes you living in a city where people won't listen. Hear me, the Holy Spirit will claim His own. Thanks, John. You know, when I think about urban centers, I think there seems to be a, a growing disappearance of the church. It's, it's almost like we've given up thinking the gospel can make an impact there. But Corinth seems to suggest something different. Yeah, it's not just Corinth. I, I would argue that if we follow, you know, the way in which the ministry of Paul developed, he targeted the major urban centers. Um, and it is, I think, tragic if the church of today does not do that. Uh, we must bring the brightest and the best uh, who can preach Christ thoroughly into the cities of our nation and our world. That's our strategy. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We live in a fallen world. We're called to live God-honoring, Bible-based lives, but society would seem opposed. How are we to illuminate and influence a culture that rejects the truths of Scripture? Well, Back to the Bible Canada has a new resource to help us do just that. 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change. It's a new booklet that presents 10 impactful ways we can affect and influence the world around us. Each chapter also contains probing questions to reflect upon and suggestions as to how each of us might integrate these essentials into our daily lives and relationships. This is a resource designed to engage the reader to make a difference. 
Request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.